Well, if you want to turn with me back to all the way near the back, First Peter chapter 2 to the New Testament. I'm going to read just verses 1 through 12. Begin verse 1, chapter 2, 1 Peter. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the corner, the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask your blessings upon us. We've already sang much of it today and read much of it together and confessed a lot of historical church truths the truths that the church has believed for ages now. We thank you for all of this, and we know it is true. So, God, edify the church now, build us up, give us ears to hear, and give us grace to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you this morning about this idea of soul war. Soul war, S-O-U-L, war. Peter says right here in the heart of our text, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I've thought about this verse all week and every time sin came up or welled up or I sinned, I thought about this verse. My passions in my flesh are waging war against my soul. I think we too often forget that what we see reflecting in the mirror is not who we are. That's sort of wrapping up who we are, veiling it, if you will. Who we really are can't necessarily be seen, but it's who we are that matters most. C.S. Lewis, you may recall this famous quote of his, 
We don't have a soul. We are a soul. We have a body. Moses said in the second chapter of Genesis, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Jesus, you may recall, said, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? So first, let me sort of explain what I mean by soul because you're probably thinking of several different meanings. But I just pulled a definition right out of Strong's Concordance of the New Testament. So when the word is used here by Peter, it can have a couple of meanings. One, the soul as an essence which differs from the body and is not dissolved by death, right? That part of us that lives forever, our soul. But also, not only to the Greek, but especially in the Jewish mind as well, the soul was the seat of your feelings and your emotions and your desires and affections and even your aversions. So the things that you love to do and the things you don't love to do or the things you love, the things you hate, the way you feel, the desires you have, your passions, all those things are wrapped up in who you are, right? So more about, uh, your soul is more about, as I said, who you are and not what you look like. And it is the eternal part of us, but since context always determines the true meaning of the word, I do believe that what Peter is talking about here, this war that is being waged against our souls... I think Peter Peter has in mind this seat of our feelings, this desires and affections and aversions. Even though we can't really detach that from the eternal being that we are, it's very much connected. But what I want you to understand is what he's encouraging us to do, what's being waged against us, the war that we're fighting, is not a war that if we lose, then we're going to be lost eternally. Because all of us know, and I hope you believe this, that when God justified you through Jesus Christ, you're justified forever. You can't be justified. We've talked about this at length in the last several months. God doesn't justify, birth you into his family, adopt you into his family to only one day say, oh, you weren't good enough, so cast you out. We don't believe that. We believe that salvation is an eternal thing. There was a time when God justified you and started saving you, and he will save you all the way to the end of time. In all of eternity. This process of salvation, God is molding and mending our feelings and our desires and our affections and molding even our aversions. So when Peter says here, be careful because the passions in your flesh are waging war against your soul, I think this is what he's talking about. The desires around us, the world, is waging a war against who we really are. Because who we really are should come out in what we do. And we know this to be true. Sometimes the, who we are in Christ is showing through and sometimes it's not. And there's this war going on. And the Bible talks about it. The New Testament is clear. Galatians is a great place to read about this conflict between the spirit and the flesh. But Peter is concerned for his fellow believers and their souls. And so he reminds them as sojourners and exiles, remember they've been, they've been cast out of their homes, run out of their home 
town, so to speak. There was great persecution. They had to flee. But I believe there's a likening here to their exile and their sojourning to all of us as believers in the church of Jesus Christ that while on this earth, this is what we are, sojourners, exiles, because we're heading somewhere. We're not really home. However, this is where we currently exist. And God does intend for us to be here. Though we won't be here forever, while we are here, we have to guard ourselves and guard our souls. And these fleshly passions that war against us, we have to fight this. Peter has a very much a pastor's heart. As we read in Hebrews 13, the leaders in the church, the shepherds of the church, keep watch over your souls and give an account for it, right? So this is Peter, the pastor, reaching out to all these believers and encouraging them. Hey, I care about your soul. I care about who you are. He's doing what Jesus instructed him to do. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, right? And so I say to us again, we are sojourners. We are exiles in a sense. And you like me, your soul longs for another world. And you will get it. I believe that. It's reality. But for now, we're here. And God's design and purpose for us is to be here. So we can't, as I mentioned the last time we were together, we can't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good because God has put us here and He's left us here. He didn't save us and uh, send us straight to heaven or eternity with Him. He saved us and left us here for a purpose. And His design and purpose is for us to be here among those who are lost and do not know Christ. Among this seemingly at times God-forsaken world, but it's not God-forsaken. But there are so many around us who see no future past this earthly life. And so God has left us here for that purpose, for their sakes. And so Peter says, keep your conducts among the Gentiles honorable, he says later in this chapter, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we fight. We fight the good fight. This is the good fight. Good fight is not just enduring. The good fight is you fight the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. So we have to take action. We really do have to do things. Things commanded to us by God to do. We have to obey. So, fighting this war. How do we fight this war? Well, let's talk about specifically these areas that Peter brings up right here in the first chapter. I mean, the first verse. The areas that we fight mostly in. And first of all, he deals with these aversions in our soul. The things that we don't like or the things that we should not like. There are some things, in fact, as children of God, as the people of God, we need to learn to not like. Okay, we ought to learn to even hate some things. There is a godly hatred for sin, sinfulness, and wickedness that we ought to develop, right? We ought to have a bad taste in our mouth, so to speak, for the things that God does not like. I would call it maybe a healthy dislike. There are many of those, but here Peter only points out a few specifically for us. And it's these in the first verse. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. 
Now quickly, let me just define those words for you. I don't think you are not educated enough to know what these mean, but just as a brush up here, malice is a deep-seated hatred. Sometimes even to the point of murdering. So this is more than saying, I don't like you. This is, I don't like you and I would like for you to be dead. So I don't have to look at you anymore. That is malice. Hatred with an intent to cause injury. Think about where these exiles were. Think of all that had happened to these people Peter was writing to. They had seen some of their family members, no doubt, die, killed. Nero, remember, who was responsible most likely for these people being exiled. He had killed his own mom. He took Christians and tied them to poles and put pitch on them and set them on fire to light up his parties. That's what kind of man this was. So this man was evil and wicked. And these exiles had watched that. And so when Peter says to them, it might mean a little more in that context, put away malice. Now I'm thankful that Peter doesn't say you should not have any malice. He says put it away. Because there are times that I have to be honest, like many of these sojourners, I've probably had to deal with some malice in my heart. Not just I don't like you and I don't like what you do, but I wish harm to you even. Even though I wouldn't say it maybe. Maybe sometimes I have. But all of us, if we're honest, there are times that we wish bad things on people we don't like. And we have this malice. It can also mean a wickedness that's not ashamed to break laws. But finally, it can just mean simply maliciousness with words. And again, think about these people. You don't think they had a reason to say bad things about where they come from and what they had seen and the people that had dealt with them treacherously about being blamed possibly for burning down an entire city when they knew that they didn't do it. Anything that they had been blamed for, they knew wasn't true. And so Peter says to them, hey, as children of God now, because of who you are, there's some things you need to put away. There's some things you shouldn't like anymore. And one of them is malice. And then he uses this word, in deceit. Now deceit, you know what that means. Literally here, it means to catch with a bait. And I like that word picture because if nothing else, probably all of us have been fishing before or hunting. So we understand deceit in, that, in those terms. You put something on a hook, you hide the hook, but it looks tasty until the fish grabs it and then you snatch them out of the water, right? Or you put a bait in a trap to catch your prey. It literally means to speak deceitfully. And so Peter is warning, hey, where you are as sojourners and exiles, do not speak deceitfully. Learn to dislike deceitfulness. Be truthful, right? Be honest. And then use this word, hypocrisy. Don't be a hypocrite. This is a great word that I learned years ago comes from the acting world. If you've ever seen Shakespearean plays, and I haven't really, but I've seen pictures of them, okay? So I don't want to be accused of, oh, like you've really been. No, I really haven't, okay? But I've watched it. I've seen it on TV. I've read about it. But then... A lot of times there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of actors, so some actors played multiple parts. And so this word came from 
uh, comes from that world of acting where an actor would come out and have a face mask on so that, or something in front of their face and be one character and they could go backstage and get another mask. And so that might give you a good idea, indication, not that you didn't already know, but what is a hypocrite? Somebody just puts on multiple faces. They're never really themselves. They're different. They're acting as something they're not. And Peter says we can't do that. We've got to learn to dislike that. And, you, and we've all heard this before. Some of our friends say, well, I don't go to church because there's hypocrites in the church. And we want to defend that, but sometimes the truth is we can't defend it because there are hypocrites in the church. Sometimes we're all hypocrites in the sense that we don't act and live the way that God's called us to live, right? And sometimes I think it's better just to be honest about that. You know what? There are hypocrites in the church. There's hypocrites at the Hardee's. There's hypocrites in Walmart. Everywhere we go, there's hypocrites. And it's not right. And in the church, it doesn't need to be. And so Peter says, we need to learn to not like these things. And then envy, jealousy. I don't think I have to describe that one. We know what that means. Slander, evil speaking, defamation of others. Again, think about the people that Peter is writing to, these exiles. You think they didn't want to slander the people from where they had to leave? Sure they did. It would have been a very difficult sin to abstain from. It still is, right? It's so easy to be loose with our tongues. How many times, even recently, have you said something, and once you, even before you said it, you knew you shouldn't say it, but then it comes out, and you wish you could put it back, but you can't. And a lot of times, even slandering toward people, which is saying things to hurt people intentionally. If you trace all these words that Peter uses here throughout the New Testament, they're used in lots of lists. So these are some of the main things that, good news, it's not just you and me that have problems with this sin, these sins. Even in the New Testament days, as the apostles were writing, they put evil, uh, a slander and hypocrisy and deceit and envy, they put those in lists often because it was a problem for the church. But it shouldn't be. It's one of those areas that we need to guard against. These are things that are waging war against our soul, our being. These are things that are shaping our likes and our dislikes. And Peter is saying here, hey, these are some things you ought to dislike. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, slander. Sometimes a good slandering of somebody is hard to abstain from, right? At least to listen to. Even if you don't involve yourself in it, you like to listen. That's part of our flesh that's hard to stamp out and, and to squash down. I don't know what it is about that, right? I guess putting other people down makes us feel better some way. Well, they look really bad and I look a little better. I don't know. Anyways, those are some things Peter says here we ought to learn to dislike. And then in the positive side, here's some things Peter says we should long for, long after, sort of chase after and desire so that we grow up into salvation. He says here, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The pure spiritual milk of the word. I love the, I guess the tangibility, if you will, of the apostles' words here. And if you've ever, if you're a parent and you've experienced infants and their experience with milk, and especially 
with babies and their moms and them eating with their moms and uh, from their mom. It's an amazing thing. And you can see what Peter is saying here. With infants and milk. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, look at what he's saying. Like an infant who's tasted that milk, it may take them a little while that first time, right? Or the first few times, if you failed at it, if you've ever tried to breastfeed and it didn't work, when you finally get it, it's an awesome thing, right? When you see it happen and you see that child and how they react to it. And then the next few times, from then on, it's not a hard thing to get them. They've tasted of it and they know they want that and they come back. And it's an awesome thing. And so Peter says here, that's kind of the way it is as a believer. If you want to get rid of all these things and learn to dislike these things, you're going to have to learn to like what is good. And learn to grow up on, he calls it the milk, the spiritual milk. A reference, obviously, to the Word because there's another time that Paul admonishes the Corinthians, that he wanted to speak to them as mature believers, but they were still in the milk of the word and they couldn't handle the meat of the word. And then the writer to the Hebrews says the same thing. Some of you ought to be teachers by now, but instead of being ready to teach, you still have need of milk because you haven't matured on the meat of the word. Sort of that um, comparison and contrast. When you're a little infant, you like the milk, you love that milk. And it's all you need to sustain you for a while until there comes a time when you need something other than that to keep growing. And it is the same with believers. As Christians, we don't stay there forever. We move to the meat. A grown child or a grown human still on breast milk would be extremely weird, not to mention gross, right? And so... If you think about that in this context, probably not going to say what I wrote down here because it looks bad after I'm reading it. But we expect and we accept spiritually immature believers in a church who shouldn't be on the milk but still are. But we don't look at that as gross and evil. Why should We should though, shouldn't we? If we looked at a grown man who was still on milk or a 10-year-old child that was still on milk we would think that's not right. That's not normal. It's not healthy. Why are they not eating solid food? Or a four-year-old. Or a one-year-old. I don't know when the cutoff is. But you get the point. We would look at that child and say, that's not normal. Why are they still on milk? But in the church, and I think this was the apostles' problem, especially Paul, his difficulty was this, is some of you should way be on solid food, but you're still on milk. And that doesn't look right. Because it's not right. We don't consider that weird. But we should. Or we should at least consider it a misunderstanding of the role of the Christian within the Christian faith. The Christian faith is meant for all of us to start on the milk and move to the meat. It's not just for the preachers. It's for all of us. We ought to long for this. Peter says, here's something that you ought to long for, not hate. This is something you ought to love and move toward. The spiritual milk. So that you may grow up into salvation. He's going to tell us a lot of things. 
Peter is as we go through this book. But I love what he does right here in his next few verses. He doesn't just tell us, all right, here's some things to hate and here's some things that y'all love and start doing. But he puts it back in the context of who we are. Again, remember, this is who we are, our soul, who we are. We've been changed. We've been made new. And he reminds us of this. He says, as you come to him, a living stone. He puts it back in the context of Christ. Look, God's not calling us to do things that he hasn't given us the ability and the power through Christ to do. Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And you yourselves, like him, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the whole chapter 2, remember, I don't know what, depending on what version you are reading, this ESV starts out with the word so, but it should probably more accurately say therefore or wherefore. So if you're reading at least a King James or a New King James, I know it says therefore. Based on this fact, chapter 1, remember, you've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, which is the living and abiding word of God. And then it moves to chapter 2, therefore... Since you've been born again, then put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And do this. Long for the pure spiritual milk of the word that you may grow up into salvation. And he goes right back into this because of who you are. Do these things because of who you are. You're in Christ. You're a living stone. Just like Christ is alive, you are alive. You're no longer dead spiritually. You are a spiritually alive person built as a holy priesthood in order that you might offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So as you come to Him, like little stones being built up as a spiritual house, this is how you do what God calls you to do. This is how you fight this war in your soul. It's a spiritual war, remember? These are spiritual sacrifices. I think it's important for us to remember this. What God calls us to do is spiritual. If we just think about it in a physical realm, I can't do this. Physically, I can't abstain from sin. Physically, I can't make myself love these things that God says I should love, and I can't make myself hate these things that I should hate. But as a spiritual sacrifice offered to God in the Spirit through Jesus Christ, that's different. Because that power doesn't come from me. That comes from God, right? A living stone. Jesus, the cornerstone, the chief corner, the foundation which is alive. How do I do these things because of Him? How do I fight this war? Through spiritual warfare, remember? We talked about this several weeks back. Spiritual warfare requires effort and thinking and knowledge of God and His Word. What well, the psalmist say? How... Do I abstain from sinning against you by hiding your word in my heart? And again in verse 9 right here it says, you've been chosen for this by God. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We looked at this in the first chapter. Chosen, these people Peter was writing to, he's letting them know you've been chosen for this exile, for this sojourning. This didn't happen accidentally. This didn't catch God by surprise that you were kicked out of your home and made to wander around. 
And so it is for us. It didn't catch God by surprise that we live in a sinful world and that there's wretchedness all around us. That doesn't surprise God. You were chosen for this. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here's why he chose us, that we might proclaim his excellencies. Because look what he did. Remember, you do what you do because of who you are. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Seth read that wonderful passage from 1 John. We live in the light because we've been called into the light. By the God in whom there is no darkness. Does that ever bother you sometime when you find yourself in sin, which is darkness, and wonder why am I living in darkness when I've been called to light? And I serve the God in whom there is no darkness. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Bringing that Old Testament language into play here from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. God took you who essentially were not somebody and he made you somebody. You are somebody. You had not received mercy at one time, but now you have received mercy. You were chosen for obedience. You obey because this is what God called you to and made you for. In fact, verse 8 says it's the very reason that those who don't obey, don't obey. They stumble because they disobey the word. Why? Because they were destined to do it. I mean, you can take that verse 8 and make it mean what you want to, but it says very clearly what it says. Just as clearly as God, you do what you do and you are who you are because God chose you. They are who they are and do what they do because God didn't choose them. And because they were destined to do it. Now again, that's not nice in our culture, but it's scripture. But rather than put a damper on things and say, well, that's not fair. Well, it's just what God says. And it ought to encourage us. Okay, but that's not me. I'm not destined to disobey. I'm destined to obey. And if I'm destined to obey, that means, how do I fail at this? You really can't fail. Just do what God's called you to do. And when you don't do what he's called you to do, when you don't find yourself hating the things that God says hate or loving the things he says love, repentance. Repent and come back to God and cry out for mercy and more grace to do the things that he's called you to do. Why? Because that's what you were destined for. And that's the soul, the war of the soul that is warring in your flesh against your soul, but that we're going to win. Remember, you're not going to get to the end of this thing and God say, well, the balances are out of whack. There's more not good in you than good, so too bad. No, God is working this out and he is going to make it right. This is why we need a good theology, a holistic theology. Not only of who we are and what salvation is, but we need a good theology of what we do and how we act and even our bodies and how we treat them and how we treat others. Who God is and who he's made us in Christ affects every bit of who we are. And it's important. Now verse 12 bothers me because look at what Peter says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So I'm telling you all these things that God has called us to hate and to love and to work out this salvation with fear and trembling, to grow our souls, grow who we are. And he says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as 
or speak against you as evildoers. In other words, it looks like it's going to happen. He doesn't say in case they speak against you. He says it's important to wage this war, to keep your conduct honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, rather they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, this had happened to them, remember? This is why they were exiled. Lies were told about them. They had to leave. And Peter says, keep your conduct honorable because guess what? Even where you are, they're going to speak against you as evildoers. And the church needs to hear this today. Live like you're called. Be obedient. Be honorable as living stones like Christ. And when you do so, recognize that you're offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because the world's going to take your spiritual sacrifice and your good deeds and your abstinences and your desires for holiness and guess what? They're still going to find a reason to speak evil against you. Because the world hates holiness and righteousness and purity. And so when you live that way, the world will find a way to speak against you as evildoers. But I love what it says. Some will see your good deeds and know the truth and come to the truth themselves and glorify God along with you on the day of visitation when Christ returns. I fear that too much of the church in America today is interested in pleasing men and offering sacrifices that are pleasing unto men rather than God. Being duped into thinking that they will somehow win men through their disobedience to God rather than what the Scripture calls us to. Clearly the opposite. Obedience to Christ at all costs, even when the world comes against us and calls what we call good wrong and what we call wrong right. The reason is this is a war, right? John says this way, we battle the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But souls are at stake, so we have to fight. Not only our souls, but the souls of others. We have to fight this war. And no matter what the world says about what we believe, what the Bible says, we have to maintain this is truth and everything else is a lie. This week the news broke, and you probably saw that there was a treaty of sorts signed by the Taliban. And the American troops are leaving Afghanistan, which I think is a great and awesome thing. Anytime war is over, it's a great thing, right? And there's a day coming when all of creation will celebrate the ending of war. The battle between good and evil will finally be abolished. It's already been won. God and His Christ will be proven gloriously victorious. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. But until then, we can't hide in the bunker and wait. We have to fight and wait. We'll expose ourselves. The Bible is clear. Just like here and so many other places. Jesus said very clearly, They hated me. They'll hate you also. But we still wage the war. And we wage this war by preaching the gospel, by believing it, by obeying it. That's the role of the church. We don't, we don't cast that aside, even when it's not popular. Even when others who claim to be in the church are saying, hey, y'all are too serious about this. Back off. You're not going to reach anybody by being archaic 
in old school and having those old Bibles. You need to come into the new, you know, the new world, come into the new age. Turn your language. Quit saying these things. Quit calling these things sin. The world don't call it sin anymore. But here's the thing. Where are your spiritual sacrifices being offered? To men or to God? Because I can tell you who's going to judge at the end. It's not men. They too will be judged. So let's wage this war. Because it's, it's serious, right? It's serious. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Such a grand and glorious thing. And it does look impossible to those who don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. But we know it's not impossible because this is what you made us for and you're growing us to this. You're working out our salvation. And this must be what Paul has in mind when he says at the end of his life he has run the race and fought the fight because he fought. He battled his own sinfulness and his own wickedness and he fought sin everywhere he could. But in the process, he preached the gospel and he loved people and he loved God and he tried to, in everything he was, be obedient. So God, help us to, to be that way. Teach us to hate the things that the Bible says we should hate, love the things we should love, and love those around us who we know are in darkness. Give us grace to do this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.